thank you, uh, Todd, uh, for this uh, kind and generous introduction and uh, assuming the role of Olivier today for uh, the three of us here. We're very grateful for you. And uh, thank you um, as well uh, uh, to uh, uh, the Terra Foundation of American Art as well as the Montana State University for their generous, uh, um, uh, for enabling this amazing uh, conference. It's a real honor for me to be here. And as well, I thank you all to uh, uh, come and listen to what I have to say about uh, on some of the preliminary aspects of a, a chapter on my book, uh, as um, Todd has uh, mentioned, Art, Law and Order, The Legal Life of Artists in 18th Century Britain. So uh, it is uh, at the uh, middle uh, stages and everything uh, that you may want to say or contribute, I, I would greatly appreciate it. So um, the Scottish painter Alan Ramsey was renowned for his portraits of a close circle of friends and cultivated men and although his portraits of the British King and Queen represent a significant part in Ramsey's artistic career, little is known about the dissemination, display and reception of these works. My paper develops on Oliver Miller's work and Alistair Smart's study of the artist, written several years ago. It aims to fill a gap in the scholarship of the coronation portraits of King George III by further exploring the role they played in expressing forms of alliance and political views. It also seeks to investigate the impact as well as the status of these portraits conceived in many versions and with minor variants. Ramsey never made a formal study of, never made a formal study of law but he published more than 10 pamphlets and essays on topics of current legal and political concern. For a painter, it was unusual to have a proficient knowledge in constitutional and judicial matters. My paper aims to bring together the artist and the writer in an effort to elucidate the effectiveness of his state portraits and legal pamphlets in promoting the British Empire. Are Ramsey's legal and political views reconcilable with his imperial portraits? Ramsey was an accomplished painter, but wanted more than anything to be recognized as a man of letters. In his essay on ridicule, inspired by the writings of the third Earl of Shaftesbury, he states that it is not for the many that he writes and remarks apologetically regarding his scholarly limitations as a mere painter. Quote, after a curious subject has been unsuccessfully treated by philosophers, poets, physicians and divines of reputation, it might seem presumptuous in one to attempt it whose necessary studies have been of a nature little connected with deep erudition and who has but a few hours of leisure from his ordinary occupation to put together the little he may have accidentally picked up." End of quote. Ramsey was eager to achieve literary fame and lamented in a letter to David Hume the fact that whereas he always meant the fame, the fame of a deep philosopher, he often got the reputation of being a very comical dog. His writings in the aesthetic domain did nonetheless earn him considerable success and his legal and political pamphlets attracted the attention of such prominent thinkers as Montesquieu, Voltaire, and Rousseau. In 1761, Renzo was appointed one of His Majesty's painters in ordinary, a post he shared with the painter John Shackleton until the later's death in 1767. 
he was employed to paint the state portraits of the king and queen from which copies would be made and distributed under the control of Lord Chamberlain's office. Ramsey first painted a full portrait of George as Prince of Wales in 1758 for his patron John Stuart, 3rd Earl of Butte, who was the king's tutor and mentor. On the king's accession, accession in 1760, he was commissioned to paint the official state portrait of the king. Ramsey produced an image that illustrates psychological insight rather than imperial splendor. The composition follows the traditional conventions of 18th century French portraiture, but in comparison with Yassin's Rigaud's portrait of Louis XIV, Ramsey's state portrait is less commanding. The king is represented in coronation robes, standing in a richly decorated carpet against a draped column in a pale red curtain that echoes the king's rosy complexion. The light falls on the king's face, painted delicately in pastel-like shades. Ramsey's, portraits is Ramsey's portrait is remarkably intimate and in spite of impairing, regal grandeur maintains a, re a, maintains a relaxed naturalness. The king is represented in his youth with his right hand on his hip on his, and his left resting on the table. His blue eyes, looking into the distance, have a lively quality of expression. The king wears golden embroidered and ermine trim robes and the color of the garter. Ramsey adopts the traditional format of a royal portrait, but instead of employing emblematic devices and regal insignia, invents the, invests, 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 invests it with natural grace. In accordance with David Hume's views of human nature, Ramsey preferred a plainer, skeptical style in which the virtues of gentle moderation and self-control were preferred to any kind of excess. The king is not immortalized, holding a scepter or an orb, the traditional symbols of kingship. The presence of a crown with a blue velvet lining to the side of the table is barely noticeable. It is darkened by shadows and significantly one half of it is missing, a point I will come back to. The companion full portrait of the queen in robes of state shows the queen standing in front of a set of columns and an ornate chair. She rests her left hand on her crown, which is placed in a blue pale cushion along her two scepters and directly aligned with the grand column. In contrast with the state portrait of the king, the queen's crown is notoriously visible and presented for the viewer to comment and admire. The paintings approved as the official state portraits were widely distributed in state buildings and represented the authority of the British monarchy in embassies, consulates, and the newly acquired colonies. The painter, Joseph Moser, wrote of the ardor with which these beloved objects were sought for by distant corporations and transmarine corporations. Ramsey made a profitable living from the multiple copies and, as was common practice, employed assistants, which included the painter David Martin, John Gill Eckhart, and George Roth. His studio was described by Moser as being crowded with portraits of His Majesty in every stage of their operation, and by the 19th century biographer Alan Cunningham as consisting of a set of coachmen's rooms and Hegel's gutted, all thrown into one long gallery. Ramsey produced many versions of the coronation portraits in full and half-length formats. 
Alistair Smart leased more than 170 copies. The Scottish National Portrait Gallery, the Art Gallery of South Australia, and Williamsburg, Virginia have an early full have early full-length versions of this portrait. A smaller version at the National Gallery measures 57 by 42 inches. A similar, oops, I think it's that one. A similar small portrait in which the crown is barely visible is in the Royal Collection. A different image in a private collection is richer in emblems and, and the assertion of imperial authority. The king, much older and slightly heavier, is represented almost frontally holding an orb positioned in between his scepter and crown. Why, I ask, is the crown incomplete and relegated to a dark hidden corner in all, of port in all the portraits of the king? The question is the more intriguing after Ramsay's preliminary black chalk style for the portrait of the king, which reveals his extraordinary detail of St. Edward's crown encrusted with gems, a velvet cap, and ermine lining. It is the more interesting since Ramsay cared to use on occasion a special size of canvas for his portraits to accommodate the royal rose, as he expressed in a letter to Lord Bute, but not to fit the king's crown. There seems to be a tension in the work between convention and naturalism and an aspiration from Ramsay to represent at once both an image of mankind and imperial command, which can be interpreted as his somewhat ambiguous position in relation to his political views on the colonies. Is there not perhaps a hint of irony or psychological insight in the artist's relationship to the king? Ramsey moved in learned circles and was perfectly suited to fulfill the requirements of his position as painter to the king. His ability to speak German worked in his favor with the king, with the queen. He was esteemed by the king, but how close was his relation with the monarch is unclear. Remarkably, Ramsey declined the honor of knighthood, a circumstance that raised much speculation as the title was days later conferred on Joshua Reynolds. The Lloyd's Evening Post reports, quote, that His Majesty knighted Mr. Reynolds, not in consequence of that honor having been refuted by Mr. Ramsey, but because the former gentleman's merit as an artist had deservedly placed him at the summit of his profession, and that His Majesty has, had graciously mentioned his intention of distinguishing his abilities a considerable time ago, end of quote. Another newspaper reported that the celebrated painter refused the honor of knighthood, declaring that, quote, by the country he came from, he had already enemies enough, and by this title should get more, end of quote. <coughs> the same newspaper, two days later, stated that the report was entirely without foundation. In this context, it is of interest that Ramsey's profile portrait of the king, made for the purpose of making a drawing for the coinage, was rejected. And I'm sorry, this is a later a version. I couldn't uh, download the other one. It was in black and white, so I just uh, rather uh, to approach this one, which is a bit later. According to a newspaper report, in 1761, a very striking likeness of His Majesty, done by Mr. Ramsey, was sent to the tower for the engraver of the mint to make a die, which the next coinage will be struck from, end of quote. Ramsey produced a profile image of the new king in court dress wearing the star and ribbon of the garter. The king, however, 
did not approve the draft and requested further designs. It is to be noted, too, that Ramsey had a Scottish background and kept a distance from the Royal Academy of which Reynolds was its first president. Ramsey's artistic production developed in close relationship to writing and must be understood within the context of politics and the way in which he assimilated and responded to legal issues. His essay on the Constitution of England, first published in 1765, traced the history of the unwritten Constitution and included an elaborate appendix on the Articles of the Magna Carta. Ramsey became increasingly preoccupied with the American colonies as well. According to Ramsey, the question of whether Great Britain had a right to tax its American colonies was of all questions the most important that was ever debated in Britain for a big statement. In his thoughts on the origin and nature of government, occasioned by the late dispute between Great Britain and her American colonies, written in 1766 and published in 1769, Ramsey declared that the right of giving law to America should continue to be vested in Great Britain, but admitted the difficulty in responding adequately to the American controversy. Benjamin Franklin's copy of Ramsey's pamphlet is filled with notes in the margins. In response to Ramsey's assertion that the flourishing of Great Britain relied on the unity of the Britain Empire, Franklin wrote, quote, If such a union be necessary to Great Britain, let her endeavor to obtain it by fair means. It cannot be forced, end of quote. Ramsey was deeply loyal to the British Empire, and it is significant, as Duncan Macmillan points out, that in his portrait of David Hume, the volume at the right bears the title of the history of Britain, rather than Hume's title of the history of England. Remarkably, while writing such complex subjects as taxation and constitutional matters, Ramsey was engaged painting an occupation whose demands are such, the painter James Northcote observes, that a successful painter could more easily have found success as a lawyer. He writes, quote, the profession of the law is arduous enough, but still is much easier than painting. <coughs> painting I look upon as impossible, for whatever its merits or the merits might be, it is certainly beyond humanity, and no one can attain to all its requisites, end of quote. Although Ramsey continued to paint after receiving his court appointment, he refused to paint any more for the public. He focused on the production of the coronation portraits, which were copied and replicated by artists in Britain and abroad. The painter, Nathaniel Dance, for example, painted a portrait of the king largely inspired by Ramsey's version, thus raising questions of authorship and originality. Was the image perceived as an imitation of Ramsey's portrait, or a rather separate work? Dance was not alone in making copies of the prestigious state portraits of the king and queen. Many artists profited by producing multiple copies in other video, a topic beyond the scope of this paper. Franklin is reported to have owned two engravings of Alan Ramsey's portrait of the chief minister William Pitt and to have sent one of them to his house in Philadelphia to be displayed there along with a picture of the king and <coughs> queen. Little is known about the distribution and reception of the portraits, which were shipped with magnificent frames and required the protection of military forces. 
when the Penn family, who had governed the province of Pennsylvania since 1681, commissioned a portrait of the king, the painting could not be sent due to the political disturbance in the colonies and remained in the family's English home in Buckinghamshire. During the Pennsylvania crisis, Franklin, who disliked Thomas Penn, proprietor of the province, contemplated the benefits of a stronger consolidated empire. He, pro pro he proclaimed that it was, quote, highly the interest of this country to consolidate its dominions by inviting and even if it has a power compelling the Americas, uh, the Americans as well as Irish to submit to a union, send representative either and make a common whole together. During the crisis, Ramsey's work was cited in the Philadelphia <coughs> newspapers. One correspondent in the Pennsylvania Paquette, referring to his essay, recommended the people in the colony to restore the institutions of England by allowing taxpayers to vote. The work of Ramsey, who had described himself as a dilettante in his observations upon the riot act, possessed much more than the idle and curious glance of an amateur. In an informative letter to John Adams, second president of the United States, Isaac Smith Jr. indicates that he has the pleasure of enclosing a piece lately published in London called A Historical Essay on the English Constitution. Ramsey's political pamphlets, published under pseudonyms, were shipped to the colonies and commented upon by leading political figures. The paintings, however, unlike the writings, bore a connection through visual means. They openly displayed social ties and political alliances. I want to conclude with an anecdote from the general and commander, Nathaniel Green, who, after facing the British troops, entered the house of Elizabeth Steele, a well-collected politician in North Carolina who had received a portrait of George III from England. Upon seeing the picture, the general removed it and wrote, Oh, George, hide thy face and mourn, and place it again with the face to the wall. The story is telling of the numerous ways in which portraits were viewed, apprehended, and valued in the colonies. Nevertheless, Ramsey's portraits, like his writings, evince a deep sense of duty and concern with the expansion and commercial development of the British state. Ramsey should be understood as exemplary in his artistic contribution and advancement of complex legal and political issues. His representation of a crown, with half of it missing, simply upheld his colonial views and the fragile status of the Union. The pamphlets, as much as the paintings, are representative of the ways in which the painter took part in a wide-ranging debate about Britain's security and political stability, and contributed to broader traditions of political 18th century portraiture.